Good morning, good evening, good afternoon to all who are watching. We're so glad that you all have joined us for another courageous conversation. I want to protect my children the best I can, but as we venture through the COVID-19 endemic, is the vaccine my only option? My child has no underlying health conditions and I have reservations pertaining to the vaccine. Should I vaccinate my children? Tonight, this morning, wherever you're viewing this, whatever time it is, we'll be helping you answer these questions and more here on COVID Conversation, the pediatrics edition, brought to you by the Women's Missionary Society and its partnership with the Department of Health and Human Services, We Can Do This public education campaign. My name is Gabriel Cloud and I proudly serve as the Connectional First Vice President of the Young People's and Children's Division of the Church. Tonight, again, we have some amazing presenters that are going to drop some nuggets of wisdom for you all. So I will quickly introduce them, but they will introduce themselves better throughout the broadcast. Dr. Kedrick McNeil Sales is a graduate of Meharry Medical College and completed her pediatric residency at Children's Hospital of Oakland. She is a pediatrician at Kaiser Permanente in Fairfield and became the first assistant physician in chief for culturally responsive care and inclusion in 2020. She is passionate about community work and also served as the physician lead for the volunteers in public service program from 2016 to 2021. Outside of work, she enjoys spending time with her husband and their two energetic young daughters. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Kedra McNeil Sales. Our second presenter, Dr. Maglitis Williams Wright. Dr. Maglitis Williams Wright is a native of Fort Valley, Georgia, and the daughter of Car Charlia and the late George Williams. She is the eldest of three daughters and graduated, graduated valedictorian from Peach County High in 1977. She attended Emory University undergraduate and medical school and completed a pediatric residency uh, at Emory University. Maglitis was a recipient of Air Force Health Professional Scholarship, which funded her medical school costs. She later joined the Air Force and completed a 24-year stint of credible service and retired as a full bird colonel from the Air Force in 2008. She is a lifetime member of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated, parliamentarian of the Fort Valley, Georgia chapter of the Lynx Incorporated, and an at-large member of the Warner Robins Civilian Club, Dr. Maglitis Williams Wright. And last but certainly not least, Dr. Beverly Townsend. Dr. Beverly Ann Townsend is a native of Winona, Mississippi, and her career progressed and evolved from very humble beginnings. Her medical education began when she attended Jackson State University in Jackson, Mississippi obtaining a Bachelor of Science degree in chemistry. She then continued her studies at Purdue University, earning a Master of Science degree in pharmacology and toxicology. At that point, she was accepted and graduated from the University of Mississippi School of Medicine, earning her Doctor of Medicine degree. She completed her residency in family medicine at the Department of Family Medicine in Columbus, Georgia. Her second discipline was completed when she earned her Master's of Business Administration at Kennesaw State University. Currently, Dr. Townsend served as the Columbus, Georgia Commissioner of Health 
and the district health director of the West Central District Number no. 7 of the Georgia Department of Public Health. Additionally, she is the interim district health director for the LaGrange Health District and the Clayton County Health District. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Beverly Townsend. All of our presenters come well prepared to discuss these matters this evening. But before I go further, will each of you have something to say to us before we begin? Dr. McNeil Sales, will you begin? Uh, yes, thank you so much for the introduction. I just really wanted to express my gratitude for being able to participate in this panel with my esteemed colleagues uh, who are here, who've been in practice um, caring for children for uh, for you know a, an extended period of time, um, and just very grateful to to be in such good company and hope to have a really stimulating and informative conversation this evening. So thank you. Awesome, Dr. Townsend. Uh, yes, good evening. Likewise, I do appreciate the opportunity to be here and share with you my experience with this uh, particular topic. And I'm always happy. I'm a, a family physician, not a pediatrician, but I do I did take care of children when I was in practice. And therefore, now I serve the population uh, from a different angle uh, as the district health director uh, for public health. So thank you for having me. And I, I will look forward to uh, conversating with my colleagues as well. So thank you for the opportunity. Awesome, awesome. And Dr. Williams Wright. Um, I'm also grateful for the opportunity to discuss this important uh, conversation with my esteemed colleagues. I'm retired now, but um, have taken care of children for over 30 plus years and um, do a lot of community service work now. So it's very important. This is a very important topic and I'm just grateful for the opportunity to be a part of this conversation. Awesome, awesome, awesome. So we'll just jump right into it. Uh, our first question, as we face another year of moving forward and begin to maneuver through the COVID-19 endemic uh, with vaccines now available for children's, uh, children ages six months to 17 years, many are asking, what now? What is the best decision for my children, for my family? Uh, should I vaccinate, should I not vaccinate? everything's up in the air to some. What are the deciding factors and what should be considered when deciding to or not to vaccinate? Uh, Dr. Townsend and Dr. McNeil, if you have a concerned parent or guardian caretaker posing these questions to you, what are your responses? So first of all, we know that everyone's afraid of this vaccine just because of the, the way that it was developed, they say quickly. Uh, however, the, the truth of the matter is that this vaccine uh, was developed many years ago for this very purpose. So we don't want people to be, really be afraid of. And we can understand that, you know, they're concerned. But what they have to do is just have someone that they trust that can provide the right information, a, a healthcare provider, a physician, primary care, pediatrician, so that they can help make an informed decision. But it's important to have someone who is knowledgeable about what the COVID vaccine is, not just anybody and someone that you trust. And also to get information from trusted sites such as the CDC and the FDA, because that's very uh, important. And once you get the facts and rather than misinformation, then uh, you can make an informed decision based uh, on this particular information. And so there's some statistics showing that there's a low number of uh, pediatric patients that have been vaccinated uh, with, from the, from, with the COVID vaccine. But even before we start talking about that COVID vaccine, let's look at since COVID, 
the vaccination rate for all childhood immunizations has gone down. So we could really focus on that just a little bit as well as we try to include about the COVID, then we may have a better understanding of why there is some hesitancy uh, for people to become vaccinated against the COVID. So, um, and I would just like to tell the parents and the guardians that, you know, vaccinations have been shown to be preventive in nature to keep our children uh, and people safe in general from, from a preventive standpoint. And so that continues to be the case for the COVID, but it's not 100% because it's not a required vaccine the way some of our, our childhood immunizations are. So we want to get to the point where people can be trustworthy and that uh, the prevention can occur from, from the vaccine or and or uh, the other important point is that the vaccination will prevent uh, hospitalization, death, uh, being in the ICU and from having detrimental effects. So think about it from that respect, uh, from the vaccination point, from, from that prevention, not 100% prevent from getting the COVID, but being able to help people to live rather than die. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Uh, Dr. McNeil Sales? Yes, I, I definitely agree with everything. Um, I think I just want to also just really continue to emphasize the fact that trust is so important. Unfortunately, as African-Americans, we've had a history of mistrust in the medical system just because of so many um, historical events that have occurred from the Tuskegee experiment to people having negative experiences in, in receiving medical care or reaching out for medical care, that it's something that just is natural, unfortunately, for us to be wary um, and to have questions and concerns. And I definitely echo the fact that it is so important to make sure that you have a trusted individual to speak with. So speaking with your child's pediatrician, speaking with your child's family practitioner or you know whatever their medical provider may be, um, can really help to kind of ease your mind as a parent and answer a lot of those questions. Uh, when I have parents come to me, particularly parents of younger children and the infants, um, where the vaccine was most recently approved and they have questions or concerns about giving a vaccine to their baby um, or their toddler who is so young. Uh, what I really try to emphasize to the parents is the fact that although yes, these vaccines are newer compared to the vaccines that we typically provide to children, they've been researched and studied for an extended period of time and the scrutiny and the, the research and the study that has gone into these vaccines far supersedes that which has even gone into like our routine childhood immunizations that we're more familiar with. Um, when COVID first came about, this was something that was so novel, so new that there had to be so many resources poured into it from all across the world, not just you know in one state or in one country, but these are essentially some of the most studied vaccines and some of the most studied treatments for adults that, that we've ever seen within our lifetimes. Um, and so again, just kind of having those conversations with the parents and also just being willing to allow them to take time to process the information and not try to um, kind of uh, push them when they're not ready or, or try to really um, push them if they're, they're not feeling 100% comfortable because it is okay to continue to have that dialogue and it can be an ongoing discussion and conversation. The last thing that I typically round out um, to with parents is the fact that although Fortunately, many children will have very mild or moderate symptoms when they do actually develop a, a COVID infection. There are still those children who develop more severe infections and may go on to become hospitalized or have post-infection complications such as Miss C 
or uh, you know other uh, symptoms such as long COVID that we're starting to see more in younger children versus what we saw when the pandemic first came about. So it's really a multifaceted approach. And, and again, really the foundation of that is that trust and that conversation with your child's trusted healthcare provider. Dr. Manil Sales, you just mentioned something that I've never heard before, long COVID. Can you explain what that is? Yes, yes. So long COVID is uh, something that initially we were only seeing in adult patients. And so after the initial symptoms of COVID subside, then you may have an individual who presents maybe weeks or months later with continued symptoms such as fatigue or headaches, uh, fever, stomach symptoms, um, body aches, confusion, brain fog, kind of any any symptom that you can kind of think about can potentially be a symptom of long COVID. And so for children and adolescents, especially, this can be really disruptive because they're not able to attend school. They're not able to function with their friends, with their families, the way that they normally um, were able to do beforehand. And so, you know, this can be something that is really, really disruptive um, physically as well as emotionally to a child and to a family to have to deal with something like this. And the thing as a provider that is most difficult with long COVID is I don't have any idea how long these symptoms are going to go on. Um, So I've seen patients who've had long COVID symptoms for over a year. And I can't say, okay, well, this is gonna be your endpoint. So imagine having a young child and you really don't know how long these symptoms are gonna go on. Um, that, that's definitely a concern. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, Dr. Wright, we've talked uh, through a portion of this and we've mentioned the word trust. In dealing with the, our community, there is a mistrust of the medical system. How have you been able to combat that mistrust and also dealing with the vaccine? What would your response be to someone who refuses to trust this vaccine for their children? Well, I think it's important to listen to the parents, first of all, what their concerns are. And in our communities, sometimes if they have trust of their community leaders, uh, their uh, faith leaders, Sometimes they can maybe have forums where they bring in uh, uh, physicians that may be able to give them the correct information and all of the information concerning vaccines. But it's important to listen, first of all, to why a parent may feel the way they feel and to give them the benefits, the risk, let them know, for instance, uh, I had a parent who said, I do not want to get the primary series of the diphtheria, tetanus, pertussis, and all of the vaccines. And I said, okay, that's fine, but let me let you know what it entails with this. And that a child less than a year may have a 50% uh, chance of dying if they get pertussis because it's still around. She said, well, I didn't know that. And sometimes if they are well-informed, with a, if they're a trusted uh, pr- provider, as long as they are well-informed and you listen to them, then they can make their decision. And sometimes it may take several conversations, but I think if you listen with an ear that, what are your concerns? Are you concerned about the safety? Are you concerned about, because sometimes there's a lot of misinformation throughout the media and it's very confusing sometimes. And sometimes the information that has been given is very confusing because sometimes even body medical bodies may say one thing and do another thing. And so it's very confusing. So I think sitting and listening, first of all, to their concerns and then giving them the information 
so that they can know the facts behind that, that these vaccines are safe. And looking at the risk and the benefits, that 19% of all the reported COVID cases have been in children since the pandemic began. And even though they may have a milder form of disease, there are some serious complications. And just like Dr. Sales mentioned, MIS-C, which is that multi-inflammatory syndrome that we saw about in the news that kind of resembles Kawasaki, where all the organs may become inflamed and occurs a month afterward. Sometimes when you, there are some risk and there are benefits and explaining those risk and benefits and what may be with vaccines may help them. So I think informing them, but listening to them, uh, not saying you have to do it, but giving them the information and letting them make that decision because parents want to feel that they have some control over their children and they want to feel that they're being a good parent. And right. some feel I'm being a good parent if I don't vaccinate. So I think it's just important to listen and then have those trusted sources. And it may be, as I say, community leaders and uh, faith leaders that may bring in the medical personnel to, to give that information. You want to make sure they're getting the correct information, though. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. And you, you talked about this, this aspect, again, of putting the ball in the parents' court to make the best decision for their children. Oftentimes, I've seen where younger parents of color become intimidated by the language that has been used about the vaccine, about these diseases. So what have you all done, either one of you can answer, to bridge that knowledge gap between uh, a parent who may not understand exactly what is being told to them about their children, what can be done to kind of bridge that gap and level set with that kind of information? And I can, I can start off. I just want to, again, kind of piggyback off of one of the most recent things that Dr. Wright just said with regards to trying to elicit from the parent what their specific concern is. So if I have a parent, young or older, who um, you know, has a specific concern about uh, something that they've heard, something that they've read, um, you know, an ingredient or you know, something, a word that was put out and maybe they don't 100% understand exactly what that means, then that kind of gives me some additional information really address their very specific concern. And nine times out of 10, if you're able to address that very specific concern, then that can, you know, assist in helping the parent to make a more, um, you know, more informed decision and feel more comfortable with that final decision. And even if that decision at that point in time is not to vaccinate their child, then hopefully the door is still open so that they can come back and we can continue to have discussions about that. The other thing that I really try to do to empower my patients is to give them plenty of valid resources, uh, which was also mentioned previously. So whether I'm directing them to the CDC's website um, in the state of California, we have a very comprehensive website um, for, for the uh, California Department of Health, and then the American Academy of Pediatrics, which is the governing body for all of the pediatricians in the country, has a very, very parent-friendly website, which is healthychildren.org, that parents can go to and look up all this great information about, um, about COVID infections, about complications, about the vaccines, what dose is given to what age, how many doses, all of those FAQs are really uh, very well delineated there on the AAP's parent website. So that's one resource that I give out on a daily basis. Um, and I think that parents really appreciate that. Awesome. Uh, would you have anything to add or, or would you like us to move to the next question? 
Oh, I agree completely um, with Dr. Sales. So, um, Dr. and I would like us to bring Dr. Townsend in on this, this question. I heard us mention online resources. Uh, as I said, when we were offline, uh, I'm a financial consultant. And one thing that we've been doing with the healthcare industry is assisting rural communities and getting this kind of information. And many of them do not have access to internet or access to a phone or access to the World Wide Web. So what can be done to bridge the gap between people who cannot look up what the CDC is saying or do not have the ability to, to get to a doctor's office? How can we get the information to them, whether it be faith-based or uh, at their local medical office? So first of all, I would like to say in the state of Georgia, uh, we have 159 counties. Each county has a local health department, which has been around even if there's no other uh provision of health care in that community, the public health department uh, is in every county. So that's one of the things. Uh, the other thing is that um, it's important that we have mobile units, at least for the West Central Health District and some of the other health districts uh, that can really take um, the vaccines in those communities and provide that directly on site uh, information, vaccination, uh, whatever they may need at that point in time. So I think that the mobile units and, you know, being able to, like I said, the health departments, the, they know their county nurse managers and they have opportunity to, you know, really connect with them, that they can uh, ensure that they can get those, uh, get information. And they can just call or most people do have a phone. They may not have internet <laughs> and broadband, but they do have a cell phone. They can do that. And one of the other things that, has been important. We did have a program for uh, Uber ride or Lyft ride to the health department for those who needed vaccinations or uh, get testing. So we were able to uh, get a grant to be able to do that, uh, at least in the state of Georgia, for some of the small rural communities. Um, in order just to get the word and the message out. And it appears now that a lot of the uh, political aspects are looking at broadband you know, to increase that for because they needed for school anyway when they were doing virtual learning. So that would be a method to, to tap into. But utilizing what we have with your, you know, your cell phones and your, your community resources in order to get the word out. And, and certainly the mobile units have been a tremendous uh, uh, help to the communities to be able to take it to them, where, meet them where they are yes. uh, and take it to them. Whether it be you know wherever they are the the local grocery store, uh, whether it's in their you know we there are still low income housing areas projects quote unquote or wherever they may be churches, um, faith based uh, organizations, um, whether it be in communities where there are maybe even uh, people who are not citizens or of a different uh, minority populations. Uh, so they also can uh, receive the, the, the vaccine because everybody needs to have the information mm -hmm. and translation of that uh, dealing with the different faiths also in different. Uh, we have the capability to do it uh, in different languages, uh, especially, you know, in our Latino Hispanic community. So we partner with uh, leaders in those communities to ensure that that information gets gets to them. We're going to we take it to them. That's good. That's good. Would anybody else have anything to add there? 
if not uh, in that same vein, all of us are from different parts of the state of Georgia, some South Georgia, Middle Georgia, North Georgia, the coast. Are there any specific initiatives that are being offered where you live that persons listening to this call can become uh, more involved in volunteering with the COVID vaccine, or if they would like to take part in getting that vaccine, any special initiatives that are working for them where you live? Um, there are several churches, as um, uh, Dr. Menil had stated, that are providing information and vaccines uh, for the community. And that's an excellent resource in the middle Georgia area. So they will uh, broadcast that and let their members know that they can get the vaccine, they can get information, and that's very important. So churches are very, uh, very good community resource because many people will trust their faith leaders. And if the faith leaders will bring in the correct information from the healthcare providers, that is a very good community resource. And so that has been very, very uh, beneficial in the middle Georgia area. All right, we have faith-based, any other initiatives? Yes, the school, collaborating with our schools. Uh, we have, at, with public health, we have a lot of collaborations in our communities, but being um, collaborating with our schools, our superintendents who are supposed to sit on our uh, county boards of health, uh, and having those relationships there in place um, is very, very important, having a good relationship so that we can, uh, I would say in my area, for some of my superintendents, that's been very positive uh, to be able to um, provide that collaboration and they're willing to help. Awesome. So we have faith-based schools. Is there a third? Uh, so one thing that I heard when we, again, were preparing for this uh, was that we have some Greek affiliation on the call tonight. Are there any Greek letter organizations that you know of that are spearheading projects with uh, COVID-19 vaccines? Yes, I can say that the, the ladies of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated have been working very diligently uh, in our communities to ensure that um, our communities are, are connected to the COVID vaccination. So, uh, and actually in Columbus on the end of this month, we have an initiative that will be coming with one of our prior presidents uh, at the national level, international presidents will be coming to Columbus, Georgia, uh, uh, dealing with the COVID initiative. Uh, I think it's the 25th or 24th of September. So there have been a lot of initiatives and all the Greek organizations will come together, Panhellenic Council. That's been a wonderful uh, uh, opportunity for the Panhellenic Council to come together and be on one accord, regardless of where, what colors they wear, or which fraternity sorority. Uh, that's been one of the things that we can, you know, really agree on. So the COVID initiative, the voting initiative. So we have some common ground with, with uh, each other so that we can help our communities and the populations that we all serve. Awesome. Awesome. Well, it seems that 
we we are developing a holistic conversation about uh, these vaccines. It's something that's very important to our community. We saw at the onset of uh, COVID-19 that persons of color were the main ones affected and passing away uh, from this deadly, deadly virus, this deadly, deadly disease. And so we are going to take a quick commercial break, but we'll be right back with more information regarding COVID-19 and our young people. Nineteen thousand hours. That's how long it's taken for COVID nineteen to take five point five million lives worldwide. Eight hundred forty-nine thousand three hundred and forty-one in the United States alone. Nineteen thousand hours to produce three point six billion positive cases worldwide, leaving people's health impacted for years to come. But now it's time for you, for me, for us. For we. To take part in these 19,000 hours. How, you might ask? By becoming vaccinated. It's just that simple. Yes, I wear my mask. I remain socially distant when in public. I wash my hands as frequently as possible. And I even stay home when I'm not feeling my best. But that's not enough. The creation of frontline defenses are the only way we will beat COVID-19. Become vaccinated. Because I choose you. Now, will you choose me? All right, we are back from our commercial break. Before we were giving you uh, some tips and tricks and ways to become more understanding about COVID-19 and its uh, effect on our community and ways to uh, beat those effects, we're going to transition into some things that can assist us just in case you do catch COVID or you're living with the residual effects of COVID, as we learned earlier, long COVID. Uh, is there a particular body type, body weight, exercise plan that could assist one in being able to beat the effects of COVID? Or is that just a misnomer? Anyone can answer. I would like to say uh, being overweight and losing weight and exercising, certainly because that's a risk factor. Obesity is a risk factor for COVID. So losing weight and uh taking care of yourself, eating properly, good nutrition, uh, exercising, uh, getting your blood pressure under control, getting your diabetes under control, kidney problems, all those things which are very common in our uh, communities, uh, of the minority communities of people of color. So all those things are very, very critical and important to get under control. Thank you for that. It, and it seems that oftentimes when we have these conversations, people do throw out the option or, or the necessity to get healthy and to eat right and to do these things to get better. And we know that in minority communities, uh, more impoverished communities, the ability to have access to healthy foods is not there. So what should they do to be able to assist themselves in becoming healthy enough just in case they do catch this virus uh, to make sure it does not overtake them? Dr. Townsend 
Um, thank you for what you've added. Dr. Wright, Dr. McNeil Sales, would you have anything to add there? Well, I think it's important too um, to look at some of the things you can do. For instance, if you're in an area where you know there's a, a high prevalence of COVID, wearing a mask indoors uh, for children, only if they're two or older, and also making sure that parents can disinfect surfaces, uh, make sure you're using proper hygiene, frequent hand washing, teaching our children, you know, to cough when they cough to cover their, uh, you know, cover cough into a, a tissue or to cover that. Uh, just choosing maybe activities that are outdoors where there's less crowded. There are things that we can do to kind of mitigate some of the things that can increase um, the incidence, you know, of the transmission of COVID. So whether they're vaccinated or not, you really might want to wear a mask in a crowded area. Because remember, if your child may not be, uh, you know, children may not have serious illnesses, other adults, when you think about vaccinated, they may be around older adults or, or people with pre-existing conditions where the COVID might affect them more seriously. And just as Dr. Uh, McNeil was saying, uh, those with pre-existing conditions, children and adults, are more prone to having the serious consequences of COVID. So it's really important that uh, you look at when you're wearing a mask, you may just be protecting others because you don't know if they're vaccinated or not, but you don't know what their pre-existing conditions may be. Thank you, thank you. Uh, this is another question for anyone to answer. Someone has said that their child has pre-existing pre health conditions and also medications that may uh, react with the vaccine. Is that a true statement? And if it is a true statement, if that is possible, what can they do uh, since their child may not be able to get the vaccine besides just wearing a mask or staying out of crowded spaces? Is there anything else that they can do to assist in the healthy uh, state of their child? Gabriel, I just wanted to address the first part of that concern or that question. Fortunately, there are actually very few pre-existing conditions and very few medications, very, very few medications that are contraindicated or that cannot be given um, along with the COVID vaccine or conditions that, uh, you know, that someone has to, that will actually exclude them from receiving the COVID vaccine. A lot of times people, I've heard people say, well, I have diabetes, so I can't get the COVID vaccine. So a lot of times this kind of goes back to what we've said about people um, having misinformation or, you know, receiving something and, and uh, interpreting it incorrectly. And so that makes it even more important for someone who has a child with medical conditions or someone who has a child with medications that actually may be more susceptible to falling very ill or more susceptible to passing away from COVID. That is a parent that really wants to make sure that they do get in contact with their child's medical provider. And assuming that you have a child with these conditions, then more than likely that child is going to be under the regular care of a physician, of a nurse practitioner, someone who knows your child and someone that the parent really does trust. Um, one point that I also just wanted to add very quickly with regards to the disparities that we're seeing um, or that we've seen across the entire pandemic um, with regards to patients of color versus Caucasian patients is that if you look at the uh, current data for the deaths for children under the age of four, um, there are about 22% of those, all of the children who have passed away from COVID are African-American. About 25% of all the children who passed away from COVID are Latinx. And then you have additional percentages of those who are Native American or Native Hawaiian. 
going back to the African-American figure, 22% of those children from age zero to four, that population across the country is only 13%. So we have a much higher rate of death um, for our children, for our adults um, in different ethnic groups compared to those individuals who are Caucasian. And I think that's something that we also want to make sure that we really take into consideration as well, um, just trying to protect our children as best as we can. Thank you. Thank you so much for adding all of that. To, to bridge the more personal gap between those listening and you all, many of you have talked about or I read about your experience in private practice or public practice. Can you talk about the work that you're doing or have done in your regular nine to five dealing with uh, public health concerns. And we, we can begin with Dr. Uh, Williams Wright. Um, when the work that I did uh, in the military uh, was, you know, prevention, basically, we had a very healthy population. Uh, private practice uh, was a little different because uh, transitioning, you saw quite a few things. And uh, I had more insurance companies to deal with, uh, certain things with medications. Uh, but the same thing with families there. Ba basically, most parents wanted to know, what can I do? How can I provide the you know best health care for my child? And in the public health arena, uh, basically, you know, that extends to, you know, you're not looking just at the individual now. This is more of a public health. And so when you look at prevention, uh, when you look at communicable diseases, this is beyond the individual because this is something that when you think about the COVID-19, it's just so easily transmissible that that is why it becomes a public health issue when it comes to masks and what you need to do, social distancing when you do those things, because people will say, I have my individual rights, but this is more of a public health concern. And so I think what I could say during my practice, I always try to look at what can I do to provide the best medical care, the best information uh, with whatever was going on at that time, whatever uh, diseases or processes. And, you know, when we look at the flu is coming on, we saw that. Uh, with the flu season now be, uh, coming upon us, how when they wore masks during that first year of the pandemic, we had a decreased incidence of flu because masks really work. And that's something you, you know, you can let parents know that now we see, uh, you know, the flu season is coming on, RSV is coming in. It's just really important to, to educate and let our parents know what is important, how they can be, provide the best medical care for their children Prevention is key, as we say, is so because it's so much easier to prevent than to treat, you know, the consequences yeah. of an of a illness. And that's what you look at in public health. So awesome. Dr. Townsend. Wow. She she said it very well. And <laughs> I, I do public health every day. For, uh, so but I think it's very important that people realize that just the last sentence she said, we we're so we want to treatment, but we don't want to prevent, and that's kind of the mindset that we've had to deal with during this COVID pandemic. Um, people rather get treatment, no matter what how bizarre it is, uh, to do anything and everything, but they don't want to take the vaccine from a prevention standpoint. So, from a public health standpoint, our goal is to just continue to educate, educate, and educate with the correct information. Now the information changes 
I mean, you know, a lot of things change. I mean, from day to day, from from the CDC and from the guidelines. But we have to keep up to date and be willing and ready to provide the information, even if it was something else yesterday. Next week, it may be something different, or maybe even tomorrow, it may be something different. So we just, I mean, I have epidemiologists who, you know, that's what they do. They just keep up with all that information and make sure that we provide the education, not only to our staff, but to the communities uh, that we serve as well in the populations. Uh, and as you know, public health, we are in the underserved populations, uh, uh, provision of care to those who are underserved and un in the population areas, uh, rural, you know, underserved, underprivileged populations. So uh, we're just going to educate, educate, and educate and with good information, not misinformation. That's right. That's right. Uh, Dr. McNeil Sales. Yes. So, I mean, everything, everything that these ladies have said, um, I 100% endorse and agree with. And I think, you know, as we already mentioned previously, for those individuals who do not have access to the internet, who don't have access to forums like these, um, you know, to, to listen to a podcast or to get online and, and look up information on the websites that we've referenced, going out into the community. And, and what we say um, within my clinic and my practice is care beyond our walls. So essentially, you know, whether you're taking that mobile van that we have and going out into the rural areas or whether we're going to going out to the churches or, you know, going to uh, Juneteenth festivals or whatever the case may be, we want to make sure that we are where the people are so that we have a chance to engage, give that great information, give that good information and also to listen and um, answer questions um, with regards to the specific concerns, the very valid concerns that people have. So it's kind of all of the above. Everything that we've been discussing really is what is going to be most impactful for the overall good of public health for our patients, for our communities. Sounds great. You know, this conversation has taught me so much about what is going on in the public, public health sphere and, and sector. And it seems that there's a lot of amazing work being done uh, by our doctors, our public health physicians, and it is awesome. And I want to make this personal point to to uh, to give commendations to each of you for your service to our communities. As Black women, most of the time we go uh, to our mothers, our aunts, our grandmothers for care, and you all have gone beyond your families, and you've made the communities your families. And we are grateful and thankful for each and every one of you and your contribution to our community. So thank you, thank you, thank you so very much. Is there any uh, social media handle that you all would like to give us that people can connect with you past this moment, whether it's whether it's an email address or an Instagram, Facebook, a Twitter account uh, that you think they should know about if it's not your personal one, a public one that can give them more information following this conversation? I would like to say most of the public health uh, websites and things can be just looked up, like West Central Health District, you know, whatever, whatever county health department, you know, those are all posted public websites. Like, for instance, West Central Health District, you know, www.westcentralhealthdistrict.com. And then you can find all of our health departments. I have 16 counties just in that one, just in this one district. So they can look up public health, Georgia Department of Public Health, and find any county uh, from a health department, a public health standpoint. If they don't know the website, they should be able to Google 
like you can anything uh, and find that with without that I, I don't have handles and stuff like that but they can find out that information out okay. there they can use their cell phones to do that by the way that's right that's right most of us have those most of yeah. us have those any any other places or spaces that you all would like to add so I just want to, again, really emphasize uh, my favorite website for parents, the American Academy of Pediatrics parent website, healthychildren.org. And I'm quite sure that they do have an Instagram page and, you know, a Twitter and so forth, which I do not have. But uh, again, they've got a really great mobile site. So, you know, as you mentioned, Gabriel, you can look that up on your phone very easily or, you know, a computer desktop. Um, what have you, and really get some great information there. And as I mentioned previously, I'm here in California. And so the California Department of Public Health has a very, very good website, um, really breaks the information down into um, very easily digestible uh, parts for, for families, for patients. Um, and you can even look things up by your specific county so you can see what's going on in your own individual county and really be informed and up to date as to what's going on there. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I want to give a thank you once again to our physicians, to those listening and watching uh, this awesome podcast, this courageous conversation centered around COVID, the pediatrics edition, the Women's Missionary Society, and the Department of Health and Human Services. We can do this public education campaign, no matter where you are. We love you and we're grateful that you have watched. Remember, we can do this.